Well, please mark your calendar for a special city tour on Saturday, November 13th. Kevin DeBose, who's been teaching with us and who is a city planner and a pastor and works at Emerald Youth Foundation, will be leading about a three-hour tour. Uh, and I took it a couple weeks ago. It is a wonderful way to get to know particularly about the racial history and the history of poverty in our city. Mary is right over there. Stand up, Mary. If you, you have to sign up so they can get enough transportation. So if you'd like to do that, please let her know. Well, shortly after George Floyd was killed, the New Testament theologian N.T. Wright wrote an essay on the church and on race. And Bishop Wright is not always easy to read, but he is worth reading because he often has perspectives you won't find anywhere else. And in the last part of the essay, he explores why the church has often been on the wrong side of racial justice, or at least not cared much about it at all. And he puts the blame on uh, this guy, if we could see the first slide there, uh, the Greek philosopher Plato. And he, Plato taught that there were two worlds, one spiritual and one material. The spiritual world is far better than the material one, he said. And that worldview is called dualism. And dualism crept into the church in the second century and has affected us ever since. And as a result of Plato's influence, many Protestants, including many evangelicals, have come to believe implicitly that God is more interested in the non-material world and the invisible inner life of the individual than in the material world and the actual invisible life of the church and its members. All this has allowed many devout Christians to dismiss social concerns, including the problem of racism, as a secondary distraction. Well, Jesus, of course, was not a platonic dualist. He cares for both the body and the soul. He doesn't teach that the spiritual world is more important than the physical one. In fact, he calls his disciples to develop a rich inner life that overflows into a life of service in the world. And we're calling this aspect of faith public discipleship. And in this series, we're considering five gospel stories or teachings where Jesus sketches out for us what it looks like to live and serve in the world. And tonight's reading uh, is often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's part of a broader portion of the gospels or that gospel about the demands of discipleship. And in Luke 9.23, for example, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, he sends out 72 disciples on a mission uh, journey. They come back and he begins to train them and the next thing that we see in the text is the story of the Good Samaritan. So this is in the context of what does it look like to be a disciple? Now, we are often wary of spiritualities that ask us to do things. And some of that is because, you know, maybe we've been worn out with legalism. We say things like, hey, don't should on me. Uh, it was a famous quote that was popular a while back. However... There are shoulds in the Bible, and Jesus offers a lot of them. 
there are certain practices that faithful disciples practice and should do. And one of them, according to Jesus, is loving our neighbor. In this story, the, there's a lot about doing. The lawyer says, what must I do? And Jesus responds, do this. And the lawyer concludes that the true neighbor is the one who did mercy. And Jesus responds, do likewise. So there are shoulds in the Christian life. There are practices. There are things that we need to be doing. Well, one day Jesus is teaching not far from Jerusalem when a, a Bible scholar comes and challenges him. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man was not a lawyer in the sense of a, a corporate lawyer. He was a student of the Torah, the law of Moses. And he has a very valid question. This is a new teacher. He wants to know if the teacher is orthodox and in keeping with the teaching of Israel. And Jesus always places himself within the tradition and belief of Israel. And so he uh, asked the Bible scholar to answer the question himself. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And that's the answer that every devout Jew would have given. Uh, the scholar is quoting from two verses, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Love God, love neighbor. That's the essence of Jewish teaching. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. The challenger now feels challenged and he asks, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I responsible for loving? In Leviticus 19, love for neighbor meant love for fellow Israelites. And there were other verse, verses that talked about loving guests from other ethnic groups. But by Jesus' day, these verses were largely ignored the people of Israel had suffered under great uh, oppression and under different occupiers. And so it's not surprising that at this point in history, uh, they pretty much did not see the other ethnic groups living around them as their neighbors. And they didn't feel responsible to love them. So before we move on, let's just think a little bit. How might we be similar to this Bible scholar? We wouldn't. I don't think anybody would say, I don't have to love people who are different from me. I don't have to love people who are in different ethnic groups. I don't think we would need to say that. But it's just a very natural thing to care primarily about the people that we do life with, the people that we're like, the people that we're with, the people that we know. It's just kind of very common. I was thinking about this this week, and for some reason I just had kind of a... a an urge to answer a question. And the question was, I, I wonder if I could find a list of the educational foundations in Knoxville and compare them. And uh, I didn't know much about this. And an educational foundation is a foundation that supports a public school. They're, uh, they're a great way to channel resources into a school. And so I went looking and I found there's no list. And uh, then I found that it's really hard to find out the amounts in the foundations. 
And then I found that if you can find the 990 and the EIN of the nonprofit, you can find out how much is in, how much is being given to the school through the foundation. I also found out that uh, a school can have a foundation for uh, education, uh, the band, and athletics. Well, I didn't have time to dig too far, but not surprisingly, I found that different schools have different resources because of the different sizes of their foundations. And obviously there's a lot more research here, but here's just a couple of examples. Uh, In 2020, uh, if we go to the next slide, the Sequoia Elementary Foundation took in 124,113 in revenue and spent 132,281. It has net assets of 227,644. The Maynard Elementary School has no foundation. The Hardin Valley Academic Athletic Council took in 451,586 in 2020. They gave out over 300,000 in grants and have over 100,000 in net assets. Uh, The Vine Middle School Golden Bears have no foundation. Now, I did see some promising news. Um, Austin East, after the six children were, were killed, uh, the community has begun a foundation there. It's not public, so you, you can't tell exactly how much is in it. And I share that only to say that it, it, it's not bad to want your kids to have a great experience or a good football team or a good band program, but we tend to focus on that being enough. That's my neighbor, the people that, are, that I live with. And what I think Jesus wants to do in all of these teachings is try to kind of expand the vision of who our neighbor is. That yes, it's my own kids band program, but maybe I should be thinking a little bit about the kids who can't afford a trumpet or something like that. And uh, I have a friend who was in a leadership group and uh, she's in one of the schools that has a, a pretty good foundation. And she raised this question. She said, maybe, well, we should kind of do something where we raise money for our foundation. Uh, we could maybe partner with a school that doesn't have a foundation and share some of the resources with those neighbors. And uh, her experience, at least, was that that was not received as a, as a good idea. So th- there's just a sense that we love the people who are like us. It's kind of human nature. And I think Jesus is trying to uh, expand our vision of that. So he tells a story to do that. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Jericho is 18 miles away from Jerusalem in today what we'd call the West Bank of Palestine. And many priests and Levites lived in Jericho. They walked the rugged, steep road to Jerusalem for their shifts in the temple. And it it looks like that today. It probably looked similar to that then. It was known as a very dangerous road. The Romans didn't police it, and violence was common. And so our story opens with a man who's a victim of violence, lying beside the road, nearly dead, and we really don't know anything more about him. And that may be part of the point of the story. The man is asked, who's my neighbor? And the answer will be whoever's in need that you encounter. My neighbor's just anybody who's in need. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side and you can kind of, they're, they're not, you know, they're not a, it's not a big road. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, Jesus doesn't say why the priest and the Levite passed by. Um, one thing we know is that robbers would often beat somebody up and leave them as a decoy. And then when you would go and care for them, they would, they would rob you too. So perhaps they're religious, they're afraid of violence. We don't know. Uh, the Samaritan, however, has compassion and stops. And the Samaritan is a surprise hero in the story because Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Jews thought, didn't think fondly of Samaritans and so they would not have thought he'd be the virtuous one in the story. It'd be like if I told you a story tonight about a Russian soldier in the Ukraine who uh, was a moral hero. Jesus was always flipping these good guy, bad guy narratives just to kind of uh, shuffle our categories. But what we do see, and this is really all we see, is the priest saw and kept walking. The Levite saw and kept walking. The Samaritan saw and went over to take a closer look. And when he did, he saw the pain and the blood and the whatever else was wrong with the poor man. And that seeing awakened compassion. And so, Perhaps neighboring well has something to do with how we see. The religious leaders maybe were so used to a scene like this that they'd become numb to it. At, at any rate, we get the sense that they don't linger long or reflect on the man's plight. They just keep walking. And it's so easy to do that in a world awash with need. Yet the Samaritan sees in a way that awakens compassion. And that Greek word means to move the bowels, to stir you. He, he really stops and looks and it creates compassion. How can you learn, how can I learn to see our neighbors that way? Uh, in, in a way that I'm not just numb, but that it affects me. And, and again... These parables don't teach anything. We're not saying we have to meet every need we come across, but there's a point here that there's a way of seeing others that awakens mercy. And one way is to pay attention, to look closely, to learn more about our neighbor's life and experience and maybe even their wounds and and maybe even to challenge some of my assumptions of, yeah, it always happens like this on the Jericho Road. It's just, it's just normal. That's the way they are in that neighborhood. Those schools are always like that. Maybe, maybe I need to step back and kind of rethink that a little bit. And I think the Jericho Road's kind of a metaphor for our life. And maybe there is... A, Someone in your life who is really in need and 
God wants you to stop and pay attention and see how you might help. Uh, I, I'm trying to do a little bit of learning in January. I, I found this wonderful opportunity. Um, the University of Tennessee allows senior citizens to audit classes. <laughs> so I am going to try to audit race-based trauma in January. And I just thought as I, as I move into this new endeavor, maybe just spending a month learning and listening, um, maybe more than a month, might help me see better. Um, you know, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is often mentioned as an example of racial reconciliation, but as I was working on it, I don't think the story has much to say about racial reconciliation. I mean... The Samaritan and the Jew are not reconciled. The story does cause us to think about racial justice, about working to make sure that people of every race are treated fairly. And that's because, uh, if we could see the next slide, our neighbors with darker skin color are behind on nearly every measure of shalom. According to the Stanford Center of Poverty and Inequality, there are profound racial and ethnic inequalities that persist in many domains, notably in housing, employment, and health. So who's my neighbor? Anyone who is hurting and in need. And who is especially hurting and in need in our community? Many neighbors with darker skin. And that reality should influence our practices as disciples. It's so easy to see, but not really see. And I, I've learned this the hard way. Some time ago, I was teaching a class in the fellows on racial justice and reconciliation in the Bible. And towards the end of the class, I asked everybody to kind of share where they were and to check in. And a Latino student was visibly upset and he struggled to speak. And he said, you know, you act as if the only two races in America are black and white. You've said almost nothing about my people. You've not asked me one question about my experience as a Latino. I feel that my own story doesn't even matter in this room. In another class, I asked an Asian woman to begin our class with prayer. And she didn't speak much, and it was kind of a stretch for her, and she just offered a beautiful prayer to begin us. And then we spent about five minutes working out class logistics and coming up with assignments, and we had a little problem that we had to work out. And, and then I turned to a, a white young man next to me, and I said, would you begin our class in prayer? And I looked at her face, and I knew immediately what I had done. And I apologized and I said, how do you feel right now? And she said, you don't see me at all. And my voice means nothing in this classroom. And I've thought about that day many, many times. I do increasingly forget things. Maybe it was an innocent mistake. I don't think so. I'm learning that there are a lot of things going on in my unconscious that I don't even realize. And so I've wondered, why did I 
do that? How could I forget her lovely prayer? Would I have forgotten the prayer of the white young man? And so the parable makes me just ask questions like these. Um, Am I so busy moving along the Jericho Road that I don't really see the needs of my neighbors? Have I internalized unconscious assumptions about certain ethnic groups or genders, about whose voice matters the most? I think this parable encourages us to ask those questions. Loving my neighbor begins with seeing my neighbor. Well, let's end with this. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So we're probably familiar with the ending. The Samaritan disrupts his schedule, rearranges his trip, cares for the wounded man at great expense. And that's what it looks like to love our neighbor well. And the neighbor in this story, of course, is a stranger, but I don't think this is just a story about loving strangers. I think it's really, Jericho Road is our life, and so it's a story about slowing down and paying attention to the people in our life so that we can see them well enough to know where they're hurting and to know what they need. You know, sometimes we associate godliness or holiness or discipleship with great passion for God or speaking boldly for God or really praying and pursuing God in worship. And those are all very important things. But if such passion for God doesn't overflow in loving the people in our lives crying out for help, we've really missed an important part of what godliness is. A few years ago, a biography came out, and I don't want to tell you the name of it because uh, it's just not necessary, but uh, it was about a Christian devotional writer who had an enormous impact on Christians in my generation. And uh, this man wrote beautifully, passionately about loving and knowing God, stirred thousands to do the same, and I think I read almost all of his books. But his biographer discovered that his great love for God was not matched with the great love for his wife. Not that there was you know, anything inappropriate in terms of adultery or anything like that, but she just said he didn't love her very well. His biographer write, her, her, writes, prayer, preaching, writing, travel, and mentoring young men took up most of his hours, leaving no time to develop the marital intimacy that they had both learned to live without. He was one of the best-selling authors of his day, and he was so loved and respected because uh, he was so sold out to Christ that he gave all the royalties away. But when he died, his wife had almost nothing to live on. She eventually married again, 
And she said this, my first husband loved Christ. My second husband loved me. So this parable, I think, encourages us to ask, who in my life might I be overlooking? Who might be wounded and in need of attention? They might live across town and they might live closer than you think. Let's pray.